listeners and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bizarre and the bewildering of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and a critic for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. I also write for Second Run DVD. Uh, and I've been joined this week by Mick. Hey, and Mick. that's the only thing I'm actually sure of this week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, normally I do a short introduction, but I don't think anything I can say can beat the original press kit of this week's film, Gonk Score Beat. Mm. Uh, allow me to read you how they sold this to cinema exhibitors. Are you clued in, switched on, or just plain with it? If you are, then the chances are pretty big that the new film Gonks Go Beat will be just your cup of espresso coffee. Anglo Amalgamated's current musical boasts a cast of top groups and singers, in addition to starring ace comedians Kenneth Connor and Terry Scott. Produced by Robert Hartford Davis and Peter Newbrook, the story concerns two communities on planet Earth who just can't see eye to eye on the kind of music that should be tops. Hence, it's all at war between the big groups of Beatland and the ballad singers of Ballad Isle. Into the fray comes a special ambassador from the Congress of the Universe to end the great battle and reunite the two rival islands. Prominently featured in this war of music are Lulu and the Lovers, The Long and the Short, The Nashville Teens, The Graham Bond Organization, The Trolls, Ray Lewis and the Trekkers, The Vaquerus, and singers Alan David and Elaine and Derek. Hmm. The latter of which is Charlie, <laughs> Charlie from <laughs> Casualty. Yes. I, mean, oh, I can't I remember was... then whether his name was Fairhead or Fairweather or Whitehead or something. But uh, anyway, I yeah. was already amused that you get to the end of this long list of like five out sixties band names, and the last one is just Elaine and Derek. <laughs> but the, the fact that it is Charlie from Casualty is just takes the whole thing into orbit, really. And it's a, it's a role that's far removed from his uh, handmade <laughs> movies debut in uh, The Long Good Friday. Oh, God, yeah. But then you could say that about literally anyone in this film. The only thing, the, the only person I think who is on familiar territory here is Kenneth Connor. Yes, Kenneth Connor was... Uh, <laughs> A big name in the very early carry-on movies, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think he's the only one for whom this feels like the kind of role he plays in those films. He's kind of the bungling official. He usually he play, usually plays a bungling mayor or someone like that, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, and, and, and I they... mean, even then, those characters are normally from the planet Earth. Yes. Well, I, I, well, you see, this is this is the thing. I mean, given to another di- director and writer, right? Mm. This is a post-apocalyptic nightmare, isn't it? It's, you know, <laughs> the bombs have fallen, and all that's left are these two two nations separated by mere feet of studio space. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and you know, 
that's the battle. Yeah. It it's like it, it's like a proto quadrophenia. A, a very proto quadrophenia, like, distinctly like, unevolved quadrophenia. It, it, it's like the version of quadrophenia before Frank Rodden wrote it down on a bus ticket. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of, remember when we did Flame, the, yes. the Slade film, yes. and we were talking about their original plan for the film being a spoof of the Quatermass experiment mm. called the Quatermass experiment. Yes. This is like that, but done with no parodic intent whatsoever, with an absolutely straight face. And yet, and yet, it is strangely politically prophetic. Do you think this is a look at what the UK will become after Brexit? Well, I, I I just think if you if you look at the if you look at the armaments on display during the pitched battle scene, <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I think that is a prophetic and searing indictment of the Conservative government's serial reduction <laughs> in armed forces spending over the last ten years. And yes. The scene where Arthur Mullard interrupts the Prime Minister mm -hmm. whilst chatting up the Cabinet is surely a premonition of our great and revered current leader. Yes. Yeah, I'd never and, thought of Boris Johnson as being posh Arthur Mullard before, but it no, makes no, no, a worrying no, amount no, of sense. No, posh Terry Scott. Ah. Arthur Mullard's the Home Secretary, remember? He runs the prison. He's very much the pretty oh. Patel in this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the least weird thing you can say about this one. It is, yes. It opens <laughs> in outer space at, uh, the, at the court of the Great Galaxian, uh, played yeah. by Jerry Desmond. And I think as soon as it begins... I can understand why Mark Kermode famously called this the Plan 9 for Outer Space film musicals. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> Desmond's performance is deeply Criswell, I think. It, it's... It, oh, it, it's terrible. But... Yes. But... I still like it. I like the juxtaposition. Mm. Because you've got this... You've got, there's no cold start here. There's just straight into the credits. Yeah. Uh, and the credits are about the gonks, the titular gonks. Mm. And it's one of only two times that they are apparent in the movie. <laughs> and one of those is a dream sequence. A dream sequence that looks like what would happen if Oliver Postgate just had a full-on breakdown on the set of Bagpuss. Whilst fantasising about Pan's people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the Gonks have this weird, frenetic uh, opening title sequence. And mm. then we get put into this large-scale studio and you suddenly find yourself in what appears to be the opening sequence from something like This Planet Earth, or... Yes. <laughs> or, as uh, I'm going to give a call out to Radhika on Letterboxd, whose review of this includes the phrase, 
it's the weirdest episode of Doctor Who I've ever seen, and I've seen Love and Monsters. But bear in mind that at the same time this film came out, William Hartnell was being chased around a robotic haunted house by Daleks. <laughs> yes. Even Doctor Who wasn't this weird. It's true, yeah. The, the gonks are in it for that absolutely classic kind of cheap exploitation film reason, which yeah. is that someone noticed that this was a fad, these little dolls called gonks, and they thought, yeah, let's stick that in. It doesn't have to make sense how we stick it in. Let's just get them in. And in terms of not making sense, they nailed that. They absolutely <laughs> nailed it. Um yeah. I suppose that that's an area where it is very cohesive, isn't it? it, it there's something almost satisfying about watching a film where literally nothing makes sense. It, it's almost like whoever had the, the job of being continuity um, advisor on this film, mm. their sole job was to step in at any point where logic was maintained because <laughs> you know I'm a big believer it doesn't matter how way out and crazy your ideas are as long as there's an internal logic and they work within the premise of your 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 film it's of fine uh, it's like the old Terry Nation quote of you know if you say the rocks on your planet talk then they talk yeah um, this is a slight deviation from that uh, concept in that if, if you say the rocks on this planet talk, they probably sing and dance instead. Yes. Badly. I think, I mean, I, I, as you say, the fact that it's full of these weird concepts is not a problem, but the, the internal logic is just bizarre. And my favourite example of that is... Um, it is the central character, uh, Wilco Roger, is he called? Wilco Roger. Character. Yes. Yeah, yes. a joke which truly never starts being funny. Um, but his but plan... With a lot of the dialogue. Yes. His, his plan to unite the warring nations of Beatland and Ballad Isle uh, is to get two of them to fall in love with each other, which he says is inspired by Romeo and Juliet. Now, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet isn't that long a play. You know, it's not Hamlet, and yeah. yet he seems not to have got to the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, there is one thing I will say for this film. Mm. If ever there's one of those Bonhams film and memorabilia auctions and Frank Thornton's suit goes up, I might have a <laughs> cheeky bid. It's, it, it's a magnificent beast of a suit. It's the, it's, the, it's the very epitome of sartorial elegance. There are legitimately bits of this film that I like, and I think part of it is just that it is so mad and misjudged that it feels almost spiteful to dislike it. Yeah. I don't think anyone would be made angry by it. No. Yeah. It, it, it's the film equivalent of the thing that your mum would have stuck up on the fridge when you brought it home from school, isn't it? <laughs> yes. You know, she won't show it to all the neighbours, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's there. If they ask, she'll say. <laughs> 
but they've they have a scenes in it that I think legitimately work. The Vaqueros big number where they're playing that surf instrumental out of moving cars mm-hmm. is legitimately pretty cool, I think. And do you know what it immediately reminded me of? What? Absolutely out of left field, completely no context whatsoever instrumental breaks, like in Holy Motors. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you watch Which this is... film as accidental holy mortars, <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> because that scene just has no no relevance to anything. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's the classic pop musical thing of just cramming the music in because that's what the film is sold on. But yeah. I mean, I feel kind of bad for the Vaqueros because they were the newest band in the cast and this was supposed to be their big break. Yeah. Yeah. I, there, was, there was one thing in the opening number, well, not the opening number because that's Lulu singing Chocolate Ice, but um, yeah. the, the first production number on Beat yes. Island as part of their Beat lesson... I I wasn't aware that Stacey Keach was a demon Hammond organ player. <laughs> I was trying. That's Graham Bond of the Graham Bond organization. And I, I was trying to work out who he reminded me of. I think you're absolutely right. Stacey Keach, definitely. Um, I, 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 was, I was sat there. Is, is that Stacey Keach or is it one of the guys out of Randall and Hopkirk? <laughs> Ah, funny you should mention Randall and Hopkirk, uh, because this film's big duet uh, between the two star-crossed lovers, Takes Two to Make Love, is co-written by Mike Pratt. Is it really? That Mike Pratt. Wow. Wow. So yeah, that's that's uncanny. I was trying to think of what sort of character type Graham Bond reminded me of, and he he just looks like the sort of the sleazy ladies man from every bad seventies sitcom. Yeah, uh, there's a character in a seventies sitcom whose role is just to come into the pub every now and then, go, "Oh, I just... pulled a cracking bird the other night." He would look like yeah. Graham Bond. Yeah, I also like the fact that. Um... They, they decided how much effort they were going to put into world building mm. and stuck to that number. And the number oh, they definitely. chose was zero. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just the world building. They seem to put very little effort into set building for yeah. a lot of it. <laughs> oh, we're on Ballad Island. Ah, just put a couple of buckets of sand over there. That'll be fine. <laughs> My favourite example of that is the Ballad Isle High Street, where instead of a sky, it literally just has a black cloth behind yes. all of the shops. Yeah. I, I, and, and this is the other thing that I'm fearful of, is, mm. you know, what is the economy based on? Well, nothing by the because, look of this. But, but, because because the, two, the, the two islands have both produced music, but Neither of them is interested in the other island's output. So, you know, there is no trade. That's true, yeah. We're back to Brexit again, aren't uh, we? And yet, Ballard Isle, full of shops. Yeah. Beatland, 
Not so much. It seems to be mainly just discarded instruments left around as trip hazards. Beatland has a slightly disturbing aspect because it seems to be run as a sort of giant school with teachers coming in and advising mm. Graham Bond and his fellow 70s character actors uh, <laughs> on, on how to make better rock and roll music. But then, as you hinted at the start, they go to war. So this is really a film about child soldiers. Yes. I mean... That's a bit disturbing. We say they go to war. <laughs> they advance menacingly on each other using guitars as guns in much the same way as we used to use sticks as guns when we were children. And everyone looks so serious during this production. You would think they were making Saving Private Ryan. You, you really would, you really would. As, and, and the other thing, the other thing is, they seem to... It, the denouement of the battle when um, President Terry Johnson realises it's all a terrible mistake they seem to confuse the word ceasefire for die on the spot <laughs> yes <laughs> there are yeah, more casualties after the ceasefire kicks in than there is through the entire battle I mean, thank God they've got Charlie there, is all I can say. Well, but yeah. This is obviously where he picked up the majority of his uh, medical His experience. medical training. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With his twin sister there handing out the switches. They that, are yeah. the first people we see on Ballad Isle, Elaine and Derek, and mm. they sing a song that had me immediately siding with Beatland. So I hope they invade <laughs> these bastards. I hope they really like, crush them sub <laughs> subjugate them as brutally as possible. <laughs> do not do not assimilate their culture. Eradicate. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Uh, the thing is it's like my other big problem here is, mm. with, with, and as we've discussed, it's got a complete lack of internal logic throughout the yeah. long time. However, given that the only animosity between these two islands is the music-based yeah. piece, and that is supposedly settled during the annual competition in the echo chamber run by Mr. A and R. And in order yeah. to and in order to minimize the trouble, he's declared it a draw for the last three years. How weak a superpower is the mighty Galaxian that this is a threat? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yes. Maybe they have just no, wanted... the, the, <laughs> there's no evidence they've got space travel power. To, to be able to <laughs> take their war into the stars. It's possible that they just want to come down to Earth to get these two powers to shut the fuck up for a bit. <laughs> I think it's just the radio signals emanating into space yeah. that's getting on everybody's tits. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Yeah, that, that concert, there's a lot of questions I have about that song competition, which is like, firstly, given that these two islands have segregated entirely because of musical taste, it's not much of a mystery about which way everyone's going to vote. Like, no. people think the Eurovision Song Contest has political voting, but this... I mean, this is, this is it. I mean, perhaps this is it. Perhaps we are... Perhaps we're downplaying how important a film this is. Maybe it's predicting the inevitable erosion of the Eurovision Song Contest into just a battle between two political blocks. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's um Which I mean, <laughs> to be fair, over the last over the last decade or so, it has largely gone into, you know, two political blocks in that it's Great Britain. And the countries who don't like Great Britain. I was really pissed off when they said <laughs> Russia was going to be excluded from this year's Eurovision. Yeah, because I thought that was our, that's our was best our shot at not coming bottom. That's the only <laughs> country people hate more than us at the minute. <laughs> So, yeah. But yeah, Eurovision is generally, I mean, nobody's sat in suspense wondering where Macedonia's 12 points are going to go, are they? No, absolutely not. And there's and... just us unifying with Ireland for once, just sat in our <laughs> own little non mainland continental corner. <laughs> yes. The the Beatland entry into this song contest, though, is uh, the Nashville Teens, a band who were not from Nashville, and I'm not entirely convinced they're teens no. either. No, I mean we had a couple of we had a couple of years away from the signature hit of Tobacco Road. Indeed, um, but yes, they are they are an oddly named band, and also. I'm not sure whether he was uh, doing some kind of performance or whether he was afflicted with some kind of physical disfigurement, but that was an odd way to perform a number, wasn't it? It really was, yes, yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure. Did, does he suffer from terrible stage fright and therefore just stood like he was crapping himself for the entire time? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Whilst nervously shaking an invisible tambourine. <laughs> he, he looked quite a lot like George Mackay to me. And I think George Mackay looked less frightened in 1917 than the lead <laughs> singer of the Nashville Teens does on stage. Uh, I had a look up uh, at some of the other bands, because although I'm quite um, a fan of 60s beat music, um, obviously I'm aware of Lulu and the Lovers and the Nashville Teens. Some of the others, like uh, Ray Lewis and, and the Trekker. Yeah, or the Trolls, a name which would seem to... I mean, that would promise a very different experience yeah. nowadays, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, them going to war against the Gonks would make sense. Yes. Rival toy fans. But, um, that would be a, a better idea for a movie than whatever the hell the movie Trolls was about. Was it not about social media? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I looked up a couple of them. And mm. uh, whereas with a lot of bands, 
you'll see, oh, I saw them at the Astoria in 1972, just before they went on to dominate the world in a world tour that lasted for 38 years. Um, <laughs> when I looked these up, it was things like, I used to see them at the Jolly Eye Hospital. I remember once my brother stood in for bassist because he'd forgotten his guitar. It's that level. <laughs> it's that level of pain. Yeah, some of them are very obscure. I mean, about half of them don't have Wikipedia pages, which is not the be-all and end-all, but it, it, still. Usually, when you ask me to appear on pop screen uh, to discuss a film that I'm not overly familiar with, I usually mm. get a good idea of how much I'm going to enjoy it by the number of blue links on Wikipedia. <laughs> you may remember how, how when that you... played out in the past. How has that worked for older well, episodes? To be fair, Absolute Beginners was probably the best experience with the fewest blue links. Oh, really? I thought that would be Hyperlink City, because that's got but everyone in the, it. Yes, but the male lead doesn't have a blue link. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's a low bar when the male lead doesn't have his own Wikipedia. <laughs> it is a bit, yeah. That's some star power. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, there are a few notable people in very briefly. There is an eight-drummer battle. Uh, there, is there is a drum-off in the there middle is. of this. That, well, that, that's the hard labour in the prison camp, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And one of the uh, imprisoned miscreants, I've got to say they've cast him well, uh, <laughs> is a young ginger baker. It is. I say young, he looks like a wizened Victorian Mr. Punch puppet, even I mean, in I, 1965. I, I, I think that I think Ginger Baker's one of those people, he's a bit like Gandalf, he was born old yeah. and wise <laughs> and with the gift of the sticks. Um, Absolutely, yeah, an excellent drummer and responsible for, in my opinion, the only good music of Eric Clapton's career. Well, there you go. The other thing I did as part of my... And I've probably put more research into this film than than most of the world. I usually just wing it, by the way, listeners. Yeah, because you you want to understand what the fuck could have caused something like this. Don't tell Graham, but usually I don't even bother watching the films. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, There's a a convention here that is typical with... Um, Hartford Davis Productions in that there's a lot of people who are just listed as being themselves or a beat girl yeah, or a ballad boy or whatever it might be or as Professor and if you look at some of his other films even some of the later films that are more in the horror genre mm. you'll see actual named actors Listed as being Man in Street. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I looked up Hart for Davis, and the first shock I got was that this is not his first film. I mean, everything about this. My, my assumption was that Robert Hartford Davis must be like a producer or a record company boss or someone who, like, Just thought... decided to have a bash. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like, because it, it's... I've seen National Theatre Live productions that are less stagey than this. Um, but this is about his fifth feature film, which is incredible. Yeah, and, also... and what's even more incredible is he did more after it. <laughs> yeah, because after it, he did probably his best-remembered film, which is Corruption with mm. Peter Cushing. Uh, which is fair. I mean, Cushing hated doing that film and thought it was a very sleazy, by all accounts it is, but people still seem to like it. He also directed a film which has, I think, the most 1960s title in the history of film. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare yourself for The Smashing Bird I Used to Know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute Cricklewood Studios do, stuff do, there. Do, does that star Graham Bond? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, it does star. It stars Dennis Waterman, so there's no questions about who's doing the music for that one. <laughs> um, I mentioned Panth People earlier, and we have the best known of all the Panth People. Oh. Babs Lord. Oh, right. Also known as, I believe, Mrs. Robert Powell. Right. This is completely new to me. For some Pan's People and what was the other dance troupe on top of the pops called? Legs and Co. Legs and Co. Yeah. I've never really sort of delved into them as individuals. I've always just assumed they were a sort of gestalt entity. No, well... What they tended to be was um, they tended to be a choreographer who was still active and mm. their group of dancers. Um, and in the case of Pan's People, very, very, very literally interpreting the lyrics of a song. <laughs> yes. If, if, if you want to see what I mean by this, try and Google their Top of the Pops performance of You're So Vain. <laughs> where they literally mime the phrase clouds in my coffee. <laughs> the one that always sticks in my head, and I can't remember who did the song. It might have been Gilbert O'Sullivan, but there was a song called Get Down. Yes. Uh, where they did a routine themed around dog training. Yes. They should bring this back, shouldn't they? It's creative. No, it's good. That, that, that was my formative years. That's what I thought dance was. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Babs Lord was um, part of Pan's People. Right. Uh, also, Flick Colby, who then became a splitter and formed Legs and Co., Oh, wow, I didn't realise they had their real-life Beatland versus Ballad oh, Isle. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there a pressure to be a Pan's People fan or a Legs and Co fan at the time? Did you have to pick a side? No, no, no. It, it was... 
No, because it was it was never a case. Basically, uh, the Gojos were the first choreography troupe on mm. um, Top of the Pops. And sadly, it, it was a searing indictment of the media at the time in that, you know, once once ladies got to a certain age, maybe 30, yeah. 35 tops, they weren't deemed attractive enough to be on top of the pops. So then the next generation would take over, usually with a new name. Ah, uh, right, yeah. So, I mean, I, I was going to say that's depressing, but it's probably the least depressing thing we know about 70s Top of the Pops nowadays, absolutely, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. So, so basically, the Gojo's begat pants people, begat legs and co. <laughs> begat, I think there was one called Zoo and Company. Oh, blimey, that sounds a bit alarming. <laughs> Uh, Presumably, um, they were formed by whatever member of Legs and Call listened to Get Down and thought, "Got it's <laughs> dog training." Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, I think they eventually did away with them in like the the late eighties. These dance troops, because we had. <laughs> They were just. It did sound a bit like you were saying they were all killed. They were all killed off in the, in the great dance troupe call of 1984. Uh, by that point, we had music videos, and they, they were always yeah. choreographing a, a, a track where they couldn't get the artist to appear. Um, yes. They also tended to become the BBC's house band for light entertainment shows, so they would be on pretty much every light entertainment show doing the backing dances. This is one of the things that you lose when the BBC starts to invest more in regional broadcasting, isn't it? Because you watch particularly 70s BBC stuff and you get the impression that this is all made in like maybe a medium-sized block of flats that if someone <laughs> just opens the wrong door on Markham and Wise, they're going to walk into country file or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's... Um... Oh, can you imagine if they'd regionalised the Top of the Pops dance troops? That doesn't you, bear thinking about, you, does it? You was in Jolly get fans clog dancers. <laughs> I would like to see people. BBC Northern Ireland get loads of people just river dancing to everything. <laughs> in balaclavas. <laughs> I would quite like to see Pan's people too with the region because I feel like their literal style of dance trying to interpret the cultural heritage of a particular region would get them run out of every town in Britain. Like the Welsh one would be practically a hate crime. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. Top of the Pops Royalty in Gonks Go B. That's the film we're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. Yes, it, it, it's quite hard to talk about Gonks Go B because I don't know what bits of it were a fever dream at this remove. I, uh, and I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that Gonks Go B is probably a divisive film. Um, mm. If... Mm. If you're not on drugs when you're watching it, you'll probably start. 
<laughs> and 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 if you are on drugs while you're watching it, it's the thing that will make you say never again. Yes. <laughs> Look, you say that, but mentioning drugs in this context reminds makes me even more convinced that this is the squarest film about rock music the '60s has to offer. Yes, it it, it lacks any element of psychedelia, really, other than the yeah. original concept. It, it lacks any element of deliberate psychedelia, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Pro- probably the nearest it comes is that aforementioned title sequence with the uh, titular gonks. Yes. And the dream sequence, which is like... It's like one of the Pan's people, Top of the Pops dance sequences, mm. but after someone had broken all their limbs... <laughs> So after they'd done that Northern Irish stretch of the two were then. Because it's it's some of the I mean, you know, I'm not exactly Rudolf Nureyev myself, but it's the worst dancing I've ever seen from supposedly professional dancers. <laughs> it's so true. Yes. It's, it's stilted, it's leggy. Oh. It's the kind of dancing that you normally see directly after a 1980s comedian has said the phrase, see, white guys dance like this. Yes, true. Um, it's, it, it's dancing of a standard that even Anne Whittacombe would go, well, I could do better than that. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. Um, and it's just... Have you ever seen that very... That there's a film called... A short film called Luau, which a group of Disney animators in the early 80s made as a, as a sort of lark uh, when they were very bored. Tim Burton was... A very young Tim Burton was among right. them. And it's like a parody of 60s beach party films and yeah. loads of bizarre things happen. There's a... a surfboarder who's just like a head on a surfboard, a disembodied head who talks. It includes a line, something like, oh, let's all go to the barbecue and oh no, wait, the volcano is erupting. And it's a a very stilted parody of those kind of things. That's a level of dialogue sophistication that Gonks Go Beat could only dream of aspiring to. Yes, yeah, this thing, Gonks Go Beat is accidental luau. (laughs) So, it so, feels like a bizarre, like Z-list parody of the American Beach Party films, but nobody involved in it was aware they were making that. Yes. Um, in fact, in fact, in many ways, it sometimes feels like what we see in the finished production of Gone to is actually the uh, bits of film that were caught in the green room between scenes. Yes. Yeah, that, that scene where Beatland goes to war does feel like the sort of thing you would do as a lark when loading the film was taking too long. Yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> Listeners, Mick is covering his face with it, his hands. It's... It's a... It's one of those films where... When you come to relate it to someone else, mm. you'll go, did that happen? You said yes. you'd had... Qu- yes, it did happen. 
you, you said you'd had quite a long walk with someone where you would try to explain the concept of this film to them. How, how did that go? Well, um, we, we were coming towards the end of a, a, a 10 mile hike um, mm. a, across quite boggy and um, in places steep terrain. And, and none of that had had a detrimental effect on his um, ability morale. to... Uh, his morale or his ability to function. But when I explained <laughs> the film that I was going to be reviewing on this episode of Pop Screen, <laughs> we had to stop while he gathered his thoughts <laughs> uh, and figured out how to move, move bits of his body again because his brain had just shut down. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, He's fine now, though. I didn't make him watch it. <laughs> I thought that was a step too far. I mean, it, it, it's very easy for us to sit and say this is a bizarre, misjudged thing, but we're watching it in the sophisticated 21st century. To be what fair... <laughs> Go on, yeah. <laughs> I think they thought that in 1965 as well. Well, that is the thing, isn't it? Watching this, I am very confident that this thing uh, did not work for the audience at the time at all. And indeed, it can't have, otherwise the Vaqueros would have had a career after this. Along but, with the trolls and along, along with the show. And yeah. Ray Lewis on the track. I did check because there, there was one member of uh, Ray Lewis and the Trekker mm -hmm. uh, that resolutely stood in front of the, the whole drum. So you could only yeah. see Lewis and the Trekker. And I thought, this isn't a very early step into music for Huey, is it? <laughs> but no, of course, most of the people involved in this vanished. Worse, yeah. one of the few who didn't was Lulu. Um, yeah. But why is that, though? Why did it bomb? Why did it not work for the audience at the time? Because you can't say it's too weird for a 60s audience. Nothing no, there, there, there weird are, for a no, 60s audience. There are far weirder films that have mm. had um, a, a, a more lasting influence. I, I think it's one of those classic cases where it's, the sum of its parts are less than the whole. Mm. Because what are you trying to achieve? You've got Lulu and the Lovers. All right? Lulu, yeah. 1964, number one smash hit with Shout. Yeah? Yeah. She's everywhere. Got her own TV show. Why is she in this for like four and a half minutes? Yes. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so I think, think bearing in mind that a lot of people, probably more so even than now, a lot of, not the, the opening day box office, but the day after and the week leading up to it, a lot of it was word of mouth. I want to see a film at the weekend. What did you go see? It was brilliant. It had Lulu in it. She was great, right? You're not going to say that for a four and a half minute appearance. No, no. What you're going to say is, it said Lulu's in it, and she is, but not for long. I won't bother if I were you. Similarly, 
Kenneth Connor and Frank Thornton for the older generation and Terry Scott have got the comedy now to pull people in initially, but then oh, it's the worst thing I've seen Arthur Mullard in, you know. Yes. <laughs> because because the, the 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 if this had been a Peter Rogers production, perhaps there'd have been some funny dialogue for those three to deliver. Yes. Yeah. And there but, really isn't. Is but that? there isn't. You've got you've got three great comic actors there. Um, you know, Jerry Desmond and Reginald Beckwith are both fine actors in their own right. Mm. But given this material, bloody Olivier would have struggled. Yeah, I would like to see Olivier in Gonk Skull Beat, now you mention it. I think he could have really brought something to it. Um, but so yeah, I, I, I think that's that's very true. Yeah, I, I, I think that was it. I mean, it's, it is just a, it's just a badly made film, and it's, mm. it, it falls short of being so bad it's good. Yeah, I think so bad it's cute is a better way of describing Gonk School Beast. Yeah, and it, it, I think Mark Commode's comment of uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space of film musicals is probably heaping a bit too much praise on it, to be fair. <laughs> because because that, is the, that is the godfather of so bad it's good films. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I I just think I just think that the the pulling power it had was frittered away. Mm. Um, and as you as you say, the testament to a a, a big sixties musical inspired by the music of the time is that the bands that were in it are household names. Yeah, and the 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 only the only way the Vaqueras. Um, are going to be a household name is if that's what they've rebranded Henry Hoover's as in Spain. <laughs> yeah, I think in addition to that, there, there's one interesting thing that I have noticed about this in comparison to some of the other better 60s rock and roll films that we've covered on this show. Yeah. Uh, which is that when you put it next to something like A Hard Day's Night or Catches If You Can, which is a great film, by the way. I was not prepared for how good Catches If You Can was going to be. But um, it's if you put it next to those, it is totally uncynical. Mm. And that's a strange thing. It seems like part of, even in those very early days of pop music, part of what the audience enjoyed was a bit of ribbing of the music yeah. they love. Yeah. This feels well, like the work of like older creatives who've seen that teenagers are obsessed with pop music and think, oh, it must mean everything to them. They must want it to be treated with complete solemnity. Mm. And they, they miss that part of the fun of being pop fandom is that you can have a laugh with it. Yeah. But I think, and I think the other thing, you mentioned Hard Day's Night there. That that's a typical example of what I mentioned before. You know, you've got the pulling power of a film with the Beatles in it, and it is yeah. a film with the Beatles in it. It's not yes. a film where they pop up at the end and go, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Do you think maybe the title sequence was added at a later stage? Because I, I can I can sort of picture the producers getting this back and realizing that the biggest star in the cast by a country mile is only in it very briefly in the last 15 minutes or so and thinking, oh, shit, we need to get some more Lulu in early on. Yeah, um, it's possible. I don't know, though, because that would then mean that in a film called The Gonks Go Beat, they only put the gonks in at the last minute. I mean, it wouldn't be the maddest decision that they made. <laughs> we called this film The Gonks Go Beat, and we've just realised there's no gonks in it. There's no gonks and not that much beat. The goal, by contrast, prominently featured throughout. Um, I mean, it says here, directed by Robert Hartford Davis. Was it? <laughs> yes, it's a bit of that. Uh, have you been following this news about Catherine Tate's new movie, which apparently is directed by no one? No. It has no director's credit at all. It was going to be directed by Josie Rock, the artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse. But for some reason, a movie about an old lady who swears a bit is, uh, is, is something she doesn't want to be associated with. Right. Okay. Hmm. The other the other credit I take issue with is the written by. <laughs> Again, was it? I mean, someone actually sat there and consciously put those words on paper. It is strange that Hartford Davis, despite making this and despite making a film with Peter Cushing and despite, as I've said, making a film that has the most 60s title imaginable, there seems to be no cult following for him in a way that there is for other sort of very poverty role kind of British directors yeah. like Pete Walker or Norman J. Warren. Yeah. But there are very few Robert Hartford Davis autorists, I would think. I mean, to be fair, it, it, it it's not one that promotes an easy collective noun, is it? What would you call no. yourselves? The Hartfordians? The Davisons? <laughs> I mean, that will con co cause confusion with the uh, Doctor, Doctor Who fans, fans again, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's also you. You can't make it into sort of a, a word like Lynchian or Fellini-esque, no. can't you? By the time you've said Hartford David-esque, you've got bored of whatever point you're trying to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah, it's a completely inexplicable film. There's also and a I think that's there's also a credit for editing. <laughs> Look, so long as the set designers have their name taken off it, I think <laughs> some sense is being made here. Uh, I, yes, I, I, I think the other thing is as well, the, the, mm. the thing that struck me about the, the quality of the music in uh, Gump's Gulby is at the time, the, Tim Pan Alley was full of plagiarism and... Yeah. Uh, there were like you know, for every hit song in the top in the in the top forty, there was probably two hundred and seventy others released that week. 
Yes. And and the thing that got me with the music in this is that they all sound a bit like the start of something that you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then just as the words start, you go, oh, no, it's not that one. <laughs> People forget that, don't they? They forget how much... Because as the 60s fade further from memory, people only remember the greats. They only remember like the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the big stuff like mm. that. But uh, yeah, people forget how unoriginal 50s and 60s music could be. Like I was following some of the news about these plagiarism trials that are going on now with stars like Dua Lipa and Ed Sheeran, which are... I mean, they've outrageous money grabs. Some of them yeah. literally are on the level of, oh, they used a B-flat chord. We've used that before. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. Know, absolute lying, fraudulent dog shit. But anytime somebody like publishes, anytime some newspaper publishes a story about this, there's hundreds of comments saying, oh, music's so original now. Everyone's ripping everyone else off. You'll never get anything new. My granddad bought a box set of everything Chuck Berry released on chess records mm -hmm. and you buy that and you think wow this is going to be amazing right this is everything that one of the greatest rock and roll artists ever recorded for one label and the first song is up in the morning after school and the second <laughs> one is riding along in my automobile <laughs> Up in the morning and out to work, and you think inspiration wasn't striking as regularly as it normally does for old Chuck at this point, was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the fact that Chuck Berry apparently played in the style of George Formby. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to have to dash and leave it there. Yes, uh, I think that's that's covered everything that you can possibly we, say about Gong Score Beat. For the rest, listeners, you will just have to experience it yourself. And it is, it is one of those films where it, it defies description. Yeah. We've tried, but I don't think we've got across the full Gong Score Beat experience. No. I look forward to the surround sound 3D... Ultra high def remaster though. Yes. Maybe at a 4DX cinema. <laughs> a 4DX screening that gently rocks you to sleep while that <laughs> tedious Elaine and Derek songs playing. <sighs> but yes. For now, listeners, that's all from Pop Screen. Uh, don't forget, if you donate to our Patreon, you can get an exclusive episode every month. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. Uh, but until then, I've been Graham. And I've been confused. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.